Welcome back to Full Cast and Crew. This week, I want to talk a little bit about Robert Altman's California Split. Goodbye. Goodbye. $20 says you can't name the seven dwarfs. <sighs> okay. I know I can name three or four of them, but now you've got to be able to seven of them. Okay, I got seven. Doc. That's one. Dopey. That's two. Uh... Snoopy. There is no Snoopy. There ain't no Snoopy. No, so I, I know there's Doc, there's Dopey, there's Grumpy, there's... Uh... You don't have $20 here. Wait a second, I got $20 okay. right here. Right. Well, there's come on, no... I need a little help here. What about... Here comes seven like a Gatling gun. Okay, ready? seven dwarfs, okay. I'm ready. Sleepy, Grumpy, Doc. That's four. That's three. Oh. When George Siegel passed away a few weeks ago, it kind of inspired me to go check out uh, some of the Robert Altman films that I hadn't yet seen. I'd been meaning to see California Split for quite some time. And numerous people, including my friend Rick Brown, had mentioned being big fans of California Split. And I wanted to finally sit down and watch this movie, which I did. And wow, it's such an incredibly rich tapestry like a lot of Altman films are. It's a great period piece of its time. And it features two great and wildly different lead performances from George Siegel and Elliot Gould. So the film, if you haven't seen it, is well worth checking out. It's the story of two degenerate gamblers in Los Angeles and their descent, I guess, into the madness of their gambling addiction. Even though the film is very funny and very lighthearted in many places, but it has a very Altman-esque dark, deep heart that's seeking to tell us a little bit about the American condition, even as it's presenting an oddball collection of characters bumping into each other and off of each other as they go about their kind of single-minded pursuits. I think a lot of the Altman films in the 70s have this way now of kind of telling us a little bit about this decade as well. The sense that people are kind of lost in their own trips that are kind of trying to figure themselves out or doing the best they can, but are hampered by either a persona or some type of a, a life occurrence that gets between them and the people around them. A lot of his films, you know, I think feature characters who are on unsteady, uncertain terms with themselves and their environments. And I think we can safely say that America and the world itself was on similar footing in the 1970s. So a lot of his films, when you watch them today, I think have this period appeal, but in addition to that, they have a way of mining subtler depths to the things that were going on, whatever the setting may be. What are you two hooligans doing in this hospital? Ma'am, we are surgeons and we are here to operate. We're just waiting for a starting time, that's well, you all. can't even go near a patient until Colonel Merrill says it's okay, and he's still out to lunch. Look, Mother, I want to go to work in one hour. We are the pros from Dover, and we figure to crack this kid's chest and get out to the golf course before it gets dark. So you go find the gas passer, and you have him premedicate this patient. Then bring me the latest pictures on him. The ones we saw must be 48 hours old by now. Then call the kitchen and have them rustle us up some lunch. Ham and eggs will be all right. Steak would be even better. And then give me at least one nurse who knows how to work in close without getting her tits in my way. Oh. oh, you fool. How do you want your steak cooked? So the film opens with this bravura Altman set piece set in a poker hall. And <laughs> the two characters are playing at the same table. 
And Altman brilliantly uses a kind of uh, fake poker video voiceover device to, you know, impart this very corny advice about how to be a poker, how to be a, a diligent and respectful poker partner at the table with images and sounds of the actual players themselves, of course, being anything but. It is simply good judgment to be wanted at the card table. And kind of setting up the characters perfectly here, you know, Elliot Gould is doing a lot. He's got a lot of facial things going on. He's got a lot of gesticulations going on. He's got a lot of dialogue. George Siegel is just cut away too, and he seems to just be quietly, internally suffering, although he also is kind of on uh, Elliot Gould's character's side, as we come to see in the dispute over whether a card that he dealt fell to the floor or not, thus rendering Elliot Gould's hand unplayable. Right. Oh, come on. Wait come a second, on, lady. I got a big decision to make here. I'm going to let you break me down. I'll let you break me down. No, taking two anyway. cards. Well, uh, two beauts. That was very nice. Oh, my. Oh, great catch. Great catch. Hey, hey, pal, uh, that card's dead. What are you talking about? The card went off the table. It's a dead card. You're absolutely right, Chief. My gratitude for your knowledge of the rules, except the card never left the table. The card went off the table. It's a dead card. Did you see that card go off the table? And in this shot, which is incredible in the way the scene is cut, you have all of these fantastic background extras. And they're adding color and life to the scene in a way that only Altman extras can. He frequently wouldn't cast actual actors as extras, and he had a number of mechanisms by which he would, he would stumble into pools of people that he would use in his films. And that's going to be one of the true crime elements that emerges as we continue to talk about Robert Altman's California Split. Anyway, what about you? Did you see it? All I see is the time passing. I'm Did you see it? You can't ask him. He's not What's the problem? 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 the problem? What's the problem? the problem? What's the problem? What's the problem? What's the problem? the 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 Ma'am, did you see what happened? I didn't see it. How about you? I saw a card bounce. I don't know what happened back here. Well, you dealt the hand. You ought to know what happened. I dealt the second one a little hard and never hit the floor, not even close. Not even close? All right, that settles it, Lou. The rule is if the card doesn't hit the floor, it plays. Continue the hand. Come on. Now, you may know from listening to the pod, one of my cinematic touchstones is Roger Ebert. uh, And... Not only his seminal TV show, which I was a huge fan of at the time, but also his film reviews, his written film reviews at the time. He was a big fan of California Split and of Robert Altman. I'm going to read you a couple of things from a review that he wrote of the film because I think he gets to the point of it much better than I could. Quoting here, The movie will be compared with MASH, the first big hit by Altman. It deserves that comparison because it resembles MASH in several big ways. It's funny. It's hard-boiled. It gives us a bond between two frazzled heroes trying to win by the rules in a game where the rules require defeat. But it's a better movie than MASH because here, Altman gets it all together. 
Ever since MASH, he's been trying to make a kind of movie that would function like a comedy, but allow its laughs to dig us deeper and deeper into the despair underneath. So getting to my earlier point, I think that's one of the strengths of the film. The film originated from a screenplay by a former child actor and writer named Joseph Walsh, who actually was friends with Elliot Gould, and the characters of Bill and Charlie, played by Elliot Gould and George Siegel, were based in part on Joe Walsh and Elliot Gould's own relationship to each other and with gambling. But before we dive too much into the film itself, let's just take a quick step back to contemplate some of the fascinating aspects of the career of Robert Altman. So Altman, as much as any filmmaker of the new Hollywood period, would become would come to be defined as part of new Hollywood and a generation of filmmakers like Hal Ashby, Scorsese, Steven Spielberg, Francis Ford Coppola, on and on, people who were making offbeat pictures that were outside the traditional studio fare. Now, unlike many of those directors who were in their 20s when they got these opportunities in the 70s, Altman was already 45 when he made MASH, which was his first big breakthrough commercial picture. He had done two other films uh, prior to MASH, one of which was taken away from him. Uh, it was a film called Countdown, originally called Moonshot, which starred James Caan and Robert Duvall as astronauts. The film was actually taken away from Altman because he had begun using his technique of overlapping dialogue. And when the studio got a hold of the first round of dailies, they assumed it was incompetence, and they fired him. He had also directed a picture called That Cold Day in the Park in 1969. But MASH came to him uh, through a convoluted series of studio events where Ring Lardner had been asked to review a book by Richard Hooker, uh, which was the book that MASH was based on. And through the producer Ingo Preminger, who was the brother of legendary slash notorious director Otto Preminger, and the Hollywood scion turned executive Dick Zanuck, they obtained the film rights and began shopping around most of the directors in Hollywood who would have been given a shot at the time. Now keep, keep, in, keep in mind that at this point in 1970, you know, Altman is 45 years old. He's already worked as a TV director for almost two decades on shows like Combat and everything else that's being produced in Hollywood and shot for television at the time. But what happened was a lot of directors ended up passing on the MASH screenplay because it was, in a way, as disjointed as the movie itself. And it didn't really have a linking device and it was Altman who came up with the device of the loudspeaker messages that would be used to bridge the gaps between these set pieces that were really character pieces. And it's easy now that we know kind of this Altman-esque way of making films has influenced a whole host of people, most notably Paul Thomas Anderson, who was a protege of Altman and was also hired to be a protective second director on Altman's last project uh, when he was physically ailing. So we've kind of come to learn how to follow narratives of the Altman sort. But at the time, you know, that was so atypical from what American audiences were used to seeing or any audiences were really used to seeing outside of maybe some extremely obscure art house films that might have 
purposefully played with the way that narratives were put on screen, but all that was telling us stories about ourselves, about our own history, about our own times. And in doing so, in the manner that he did, he really invented a whole new cinematic language. He's really part of the cadre of directors who changed the way movies sound and looked forever. It's hard to overstate how difficult this was for entrenched studio executives to wrap their arms around when they're getting a load of a film that's, you know, a tone poem. It's a collection of oddball characters uh, bouncing off of each other. And it does not follow a linear plot. It does not have the first reel, second reel, third reel type story breakup that people are used to seeing. And Altman, you know, famously, as spending 20 years as he had already had in show business by the time he started making feature films, he didn't really have a lot of sympathy, patience, or time to explain things to studio executives with whom he waged a career-long battle of us versus them. Rightly or wrongly. I think a lot of people in his biography ended up talking about the fact that Bob kind of liked having it both ways. He wanted all of the trappings of, of fame and success, and he also wanted to be at odds and at war with someone. And the studio is obviously such a convenient foil for that type of a creative personality. So through a convoluted series of events, Altman ends up with the opportunity to re- direct MASH because, frankly, no one else really wanted to. And of course, it became a defining film for him, for American cinema. Uh, It spawned the TV series with which Altman had a complicated and unhappy relationship because he didn't benefit or participate in that at all. Famously, his, I think, then 13 or 14-year-old son made a hell of a lot more money off of MASH than Altman himself did, not only because Altman's fee originally having been negotiated with the studio for something like $150,000 plus a point or two percentage of the profits was rejected by the studio once the bean counters got a hold of it. And they forced his agent to call Altman back and accept $75,000 as opposed to 150 with no points. And Dick Zanuck in the oral biography still kind of indignantly quoted as saying, you know, no one got points then. So, you know, Bob's insistence that he receive a point was, was, was over the line and all this kind of thing. And this is the type of thing that, you know, would infuriate you and does infuriate you when you deal with corporate entities. And in the book, his agent gives him such a great, funny piece of advice. He says, you know, Bob's calling him up after he's gotten the news that they want to cut his fee in half and they want to take away his points. And despite the fact that the agent is kind of trying to say to him, hey, Bob, it's not like the studios are lining up to hire you as a director. So why don't we take this and make the best of it? But he also uses the other tact, which I think is so brilliant. He tells Altman, hey, do you really want to fuck these guys? And Altman says, yes, I really want to fuck them. I really want to get one over on them. He says, okay, take the deal. And Altman says, what do you mean take the deal? That sacrifices everything. And his his agent or manager says, no, no, no. Take the deal. And then when this is a big hit, you will get to set the terms. And he proved to be right to some degree. Of course, Altman (laughs) next made a film uh, that, you know, would challenge any studio's uh, generosity towards a director when he made Brewster McCloud next, which was a flight of fancy uh, starring Bud Court, you know, as a kid who lives in the Houston Astrodome and thinks he can fly. If you think Robert Altman made a mess of the army in MASH, (laughs) wait till you see what he does to the cops. 
in Brewster McLeod. What do you think we are down here, stupid? Brewster McLeod, a young boy's heroic struggle against the combined forces of gravity and the Houston police. But that's another story for another episode. So anyway, back to the story of his son, uh, Michael, I believe, making more money out of MASH than Altman himself did. So Johnny Mandel, legendary composer, had written music to what became Suicide is Painless. And Altman came home and had tried a number of different lyricists and had tried a number of different lyrical setups. And for some reason, I think he became fixated in his mind that he wanted sort of the stupidest song ever about suicide. And none of the lyricists could quite hit the nail on the head. Or perhaps he wasn't describing what he wanted accurately enough, but be that as it may, he went home and told his 14-year-old son to take a stab at it. And he did. And those are the lyrics to Suicide is Painless. Through early morning fog I see Visions of the things to be The pains that are withheld for me I realize and I can see that suicide is painless. It brings on many changes and I can take or leave it if I please. And I think from that single song, uh, Michael Altman says that he you know, made hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of thousands of dollars over the years, uh, which is kind of hilarious when you think about the success of the TV series and Altman not benefiting from that, but his son continuing to benefit from being the lyricist for <laughs> Suicide is Painless used uh, dramatically in both the movie and the TV series. So that was the film that kind of launched what would become known as Altman-esque filmmaking, you know, overlapping dialogue, uh, a very high confidence of tone, you know, a, a directorial vision that could accept things that didn't look and sound the way they were quote unquote supposed to. And whether Altman always had these films all together in his mind or whether he was just sort of stoned enough, genius enough, whatever enough to trust that his process would lead to a positive result, that does seem to be the outcome at least about half the time and over the films that he made, because he made a hell of a lot of movies and not all of them were successful and not all of them were good. But the great ones, you know, California Split, Nashville, The Long Goodbye, McCabe and Mrs. Miller, MASH, The Player, Shortcuts, uh, on and on, Gosford Park, you know, all the way up to his final film, A Prairie Home Companion. The ones that work are the product of a mind that is very unique in terms of how it approaches film narrative and acting performances. So when you look at Altman's career, there's kind of three distinct periods. You have what I would call first period Altman, which I think kicks off with MASH in 1970 and kind of concludes with Nashville in 1975. In that five-year span, he made MASH, Brewster McCloud, McCabe and Mrs. Miller, The Long Goodbye, California Split, Nashville, Thieves Like Us, on and on. I mean, he was working like a maniac. The second period Altman kind of covers this sort of fallow period between 1977 and really up until The Player in 1992, which kicks off the third period. In this second period, you have three women. You have Popeye, which was a famously 
I don't know what to call Popeye. I kind of want to rewatch Popeye because I, I read about it and it's a lot more interesting to read about than I remember it was to see at the time. I believe it's Robin Williams' first ever film role. And it's one of a number of films that Altman would make with Shelley Duvall, who he pretty much discovered and put into the movies on the basis of meeting her at a uh, art sale that she was conducting for her husband at the time. And he's the one who put her in movies. And then you have that third period, you know, the period that maybe many people listening to the podcast sort of know because it was when we were of age to be going to the cinema. And we were seeing things like The Player, Shortcuts, Ready to Wear, Kansas City, Cookie's Fortune, Dr. T and the Women, Gosford Park, The Company, and his final film in 2006, A Prairie Home Companion. So this is a guy who always worked. When the movies uh, were not giving him movies to direct, he directed plays, he directed opera, he directed TV movies. Uh, he stayed busy, and he had to. Uh, he seemed to have a lifetime of financial difficulties. He enjoyed living large. Uh, he financed and carried a large company of people to help him do the things that he wanted to do. Uh, he had a big, messy, brawny type of a life and made many big, messy, brawny types of films. So in a funny way, when I'm doing some of the sort of research and background on uh, California Split, come to find out, I intersect with this film in an interesting way. The business of my company intersects in part with the business of California Split. And how could that possibly be? Well, as I mentioned, Joe Walsh and Elliot Gould were friends, and Joe Walsh, former child actor, screenwriter, degenerate gambler, decided that no one had really gotten gambling right on film, and he wanted to write the ultimate gambling movie. So he wrote a script, and MGM, a film studio at the time, wanted to make the movie. The head of MGM was a guy named James T. Aubrey. James Aubrey had formerly run CBS in the early to mid-60s and became famous for uh, what they called broads, bosoms, and fun. Shows like Beverly Hillbillies, Gilligan's Island, Green Acres, Petticoat Junction, and The Munsters. What was considered at the time lowbrow fare, uh, some were considered jiggle shows, but they had an incredible impact on the bottom line of CBS at the time. And Jim Aubrey was a very powerful, very certain person who was brilliantly nicknamed the Smiling Cobra by the actor and producer and director John Houseman. The Smiling Cobra is such a great nickname. <laughs> uh, and I think it speaks to what people thought of Jim Aubrey's uh, penchant for certitude and assassin-like maneuvering in the business sense. Aubrey's a very colorful character worth reading about. He kind of famously ascended to the highest heights of the entertainment industry on the heels of his own success, and then became a little bit more eccentric and difficult and kind of became his own worst enemy and then suffered an ignominious fall from grace and defeat, as often happens. So where do we interact? Well, some years ago, my company, Meeting House Productions, how did we come across this? I don't even know. Somehow we became aware of a 1983 Jungle Adventure series starring Stan Brock, who had been a bit player on the Mutual of Omaha Wild Kingdom series. I'm Stan Brock, your guide on Expedition Danger, Jungle Justice. The show was called Expedition Danger, and Expedition Danger was produced by Jim Aubrey's son. And rumor has it, that they went and shot this in South America 
with American and English actors. And they returned and realized that they had screwed up the recording of the audio. So they had all of the filmed images and all of the people talking visually, but they didn't remember to or screwed up the recording of the audio track. So the fix for this was to layer over a voiceover from Stan Brock, who kind of narrates everything that's happening in these scenes. And it gives it this very weird, ethereal, removed quality. Who's that? He doesn't look like one of our cowboys. That looks like one of our cattle. I don't know what this fellow is up to, but I think he's pointing his gun. Suddenly, the stranger opens fire and the bullets fly past us. Nadia goes for help. And it's very unintentionally funny. And however we became aware of this, I'm not even sure how, we, how I became aware of it. I can't even really remember, to be honest with you. This is probably 2010, 2011, 2012. Well, uh, I tracked down the fact that the master tapes for this series were held in the Fox vaults, literally in a vault in California. But Fox did not own them. And in order to own them, one simply had to purchase the rights to these episodes, of which I think there are 26, from uh, Jim Aubrey's son, Jay Aubrey. And so I found Jay Aubrey. Uh, we made a deal. And Meeting House purchased the rights to the underlying episodes. And purchase agreement in hand, we were able to get all of the original films, uh, including the audio mags, from the Fox Vault. And our partners at Postworks uh, were able to reconstruct and make us copies of each episode uh, uh, digitally so that we could then have fun with them. And our idea was to make a series where we insert our own comedic actors into and around the actors already in the episodes. In, in doing so, we call out all of the things that are sort of unintentionally funny and unintentionally colonialist about these white people going into the pompous areas of South America and solving the problems of all the locals, which is kind of the, the constructing principle of the series. So in meeting Jay Aubrey and his sister Sky Aubrey, I had sort of a funny introduction and interaction with kind of second generation uh, Hollywood royalty, if you will. And a colorful negotiation, uh, colorful characters, wonderful people. And it was a fun part of the early life of our company getting to uh, cross paths with some of these folks. And in doing the research on the film, well, here comes Jim Aubrey. Jay's father is the person who uh, sets this up at MGM originally. And Joe Walsh spends about eight months working on the script with Steven Spielberg, who loved it and wanted to direct it. But Jim Aubrey wanted to make some changes. Jim Aubrey wanted Dean Martin to be in the movie. He wanted Dean Martin to have a lucky poker chip. And at the end, someone, a gangster was going to shoot him. And the reason that Dean Martin was going to live uh, was because his lucky chip was going to deflect the bullet. And the name of the film was going to be Lucky Chip. And part of it was going to be shot at the MGM Casino. Thinking corporate synergy was one of the things that Jim Aubrey was really a pioneer of at the time. But Joe Walsh was not interested in that. And Spielberg was not interested in that. So it bounced away from MGM. And eventually it landed in the hands of Robert Altman. So Altman met with Joe Walsh and was very forthright and frank with him. He said, you know, you're not supposed to like me. 
And Joel said, what do you mean? And he said, well, writers don't like me because I famously don't shoot what they wrote on the page. Uh, at this point, you know, Altman had been known for really drastically altering scripts and following his muse and following whatever happened on a set, following the ideas of actors whom he really had an incredible and impressive amount of trust in. Joe Walsh said himself that Bob was in love with being surprised on a film set. That's a pretty good quality to have as a director. Of course, most directors in the tyrannical caricature of a director want everything exactly their way, and they don't want to brook any consequence or thought that it might be shot in a different way than they have in mind. And that may well work quite well for a number of directors, but that's not how Bob Altman went about things. One of the interesting things in the oral biography was how many times Altman would cast someone for a very critical role in a film based on nothing more than his interaction with them before their audition. He was not a big person who auditioned actors and went on what they did in the audition room. You know, someone like Keith Carradine, he just kind of met and he saw that Carradine had this quality, this, this, this remove. What it really was, was kind of the fear that Carradine had that he wouldn't be good enough to pull off the role in Nashville that he was being asked to pull off. And of course, Altman was smart enough to see that that exact quality is what was going to read on camera, that diffident nature, that disconnected nature from this person that I'm supposed to be. Am I really that person? I know I'm kind of not. And that's really the quality that Carradine reads on screen in Nashville. Bill and Mary. And I was originally cast in the role of Bill. And Gary Busey was originally scheduled to play Tom. And then Gary bowed out because uh, he chose to do a uh, pilot for a television series called The Texas Wheelers with uh, Jack Elam. And one can easily imagine Busey playing that kind of a person. Bob, I think, took a perverse pleasure in putting me into that role, knowing how uncomfortable it would make me to play that kind of a guy. It don't worry me. I wasn't comfortable with who I was being asked to be in the movie. I didn't like the guy, you know? And I was young enough and, and, and immature enough to have a problem with having to play somebody that I didn't like. And I remember at one point, halfway through filming, I think it was while we were doing the exit in stuff, and I was feeling particularly lost and at sea and uncomfortable, and I went to Bob and, and said, Bob, I just, I... I'm not happy. I don't know what I'm doing. I don't feel good about what he, and he just said, ah, oh, you're fine. You're fine. Just, and he walked, he wouldn't talk to me about it. He knew exactly what he was doing. And what you see in the film, the end result is this actor who doesn't like the character he's playing. Well, what the audience get, gets is, is a, a, a guy who doesn't like himself. So smart. And that's what Altman was going for. He's casting people on that basis, not on the basis of coming in and knocking it out of the park in an audition. And more than that, on set, he's completely willing to let actors come up and have their own ideas, and he's completely willing to follow that wherever it goes. Um, and it doesn't seem that he ever really paid a terrible price for that. I mean, I think a lot of times you would think, oh boy, if you let the actors run away with the picture, you know, you're never going to get anything you're going to be able to wrangle together. But that doesn't seem to be the case with a lot of what uh, Altman was able to capture. 
you know, certainly he did make some films that didn't work, but I'm not sure that was the reason why. So there's a lot of anecdotes in the book of actors coming up to him and saying, so Bob, you know, uh, what are you thinking about this scene? You know, what, what do you think I should do? What do you think this? And he would just kind of always either avoid that, which was a really brilliant tactic that gets mentioned a lot in the book, which is, you know, you don't have to have every conversation. You can put someone off enough until they lose the opportunity to ask you something and then they just kind of go do it. And then after the fact, he would come back to the actor and say, you know, the reason I didn't want to have a conversation with you about this is uh, I hired you to do the acting. If I had thoughts about what the acting should be, I would probably do it myself. But I, that's your job. I have plenty of other jobs. He had a lot of conversations like that. And also in the book, there's a few anecdotes of actors who did not work well with this style of working. At first, uh, Elliot Gould and Donald Sutherland were not fans of the Altman style when making MASH. Of course, after the fact, and after the film is such a huge monumental counterculture counter success, you know, uh, Elliot can't wait to sign up for more Bob Altman films and would go on to be a regular player in many of the films that he would make. But one of the best films to read about is McCabe and Mrs. Miller, which starred Warren Beatty and his then girlfriend, Julie Christie. And, you know, Beatty at this point is at the height of his powers, not only as an actor, but as a writer, a director, a producer, you know, he's Warren. He's a one, he's a one name entity in Hollywood. And you don't just cast him in your movie and then expect him to do, do whatever you're asking him to do. You know, you're taking on this entire persona and this entity that believes he is a better director than you and a better producer than you and a better writer than you. And in a way, what's fascinating about McCabe and Mrs. Miller, which I don't, which I think is a, is a really good film and it's a really interesting Western. I don't know if I'd say it's a great film or a great Altman film, but it has a lot of great things going for it. One of the most interesting things it has going for it is the way Altman uses that very aspect of Beatty's personality. I'm not going to say against Beatty, but in a way it's, it's a, it's an atypical role for Beatty because he's kind of the dunce. He's kind of the one the joke is on, yet he doesn't know it through much of the movie. And this, I think, is a brilliant stroke on Altman's part to kind of cast Beatty and all that went along with that at the time in order to perhaps catch that quality, much in the same way he did with Keith Carradine. Uh, in a different way, Keith Carradine had an insecurity and whether Beatty's actions on film sets stemmed from insecurity or a sense of superiority, you know, I don't know, but Allman was smart enough to know that that quality of Beatty's, that being off put by what Altman was asking him to do and how he was asking him to do it, would read a certain way uh, on camera. And that's what he got. And there's some other, some other great anecdotes where, you know, it kind of became apparent that Julie Christie is a little bit better in the movie than Warren. You know, she's effortlessly talented and great and reads brilliantly on screen right away. And she has a different type of a role so she can do that. Beatty's character is deluded. He is someone who has a, uh, a very American sense of overconfidence and self-belief, which ultimately proves to be his undoing. And Julie Christie has a little bit more of the, well, it's a little bit more of a thankless role. I mean, it's the hooker with a heart of gold role which is kind of a hackneyed trope unto itself, but she's so good that she just uh, evanesces off the screen in a way that's, that's fantastic. And apparently that didn't go over too well with Warren either. 
So anyway, they set up California Split. Let's do a little alternative casting. Put that one back. Originally, Steve McQueen was attached. But Joe Walsh says that Steve wanted writing that wasn't there. And he eventually uh, parted the project. George Siegel always seemed to be attached the entire time that, you know, Joe Walsh is talking about the making of the film. Uh, but they did consider Peter Falk for the Elliot Gould character. And apparently also Robert De Niro. Another couple funny uh, Altman anecdotes from the making of. You know, Altman was famously uh, kind of unfiltered and extremely direct, uh, which I think there seems to be a cadre of actors for whom that really worked because they're getting direct feedback and input. And there's a cadre of actors for whom that really does not work. Altman, I think, usually was able to find the type of actor that he wanted who wouldn't be put off by that. But there were bumps in the road and there were learning curves for certain actors who may not have been used to receiving feedback as directly as Altman might give it and as unfiltered as he might give it. You know, in throughout the course of his life, I think Altman had a reputation as a bully, as a mean-spirited person who would say hurtful and nasty things. And it seems in the oral history, the oral biography, which I think is somewhat believable in the sense that you're reading, you know, 30, 40, 50 different people talking about a person as opposed to an author putting together a biography. Uh, I think there are instances of that behavior from Altman, but I think there's also as many instances of just unvarnished, unfiltered, direct feedback, which people are not used to getting. For example, <laughs> when they were filming MASH, he had a big blow up with Elliot Gould uh, during some complicated crane shot where, you know, the planning was difficult and, you know, actors don't want to wait around on set while things are being set up. You know, they want to be called to the set and then put to work right away. But of course, that's not the way the set always works. And the director doesn't always have the freedom to err on the side of the actor comfort and sometimes needs all the parts assembled, even though it's going to take minutes or hours to get things all coordinated to run together at the same time. So he and Elliot Gould were having some sort of a disagreement over this shot. And Altman turned to Elliot Gould and just simply said, why can't you be like somebody else? <laughs> just is such a cutting remark. And Gould's telling this anecdote many, many years later. He's like, wow, I don't think anyone had ever just cut me down so quickly like that. There's another funny anecdote, unexpectedly, uh, in getting into Charles Grodin's books after his passing a couple of weeks ago and doing the episode I did as an appreciation for Charles Grodin. In one of his books, he talks about meeting uh, Robert Altman. And I think they were doing some type of award show together or something. And they had been on the periphery. They'd, you know, they'd been in Hollywood around the same time for numbers and numbers of years. So you know, they had a sense of each other. And in some ways, Grodin would have been an amazing actor to uh, take part in an Altman film because he had that dexterity and that writing ability, uh, the improvis improvisation ability. He would have been really interesting. So anyway, he and, he and Altman found themselves kind of backstage at something. And Altman's just kind of looking at him out of the corner of his eye. And, and Charles Grodin is also a very direct and forthright and forthcoming person. And so you have kind of the meeting of these two people who got a reputation for prickliness because they would say the thing that everyone was thinking, but that no one would say. So Grodin kind of sees Altman eyeing him across the room. And rather than just sort of ignoring it, he goes, hey, what's up? You know, like, what are, you, what are you looking at me for? And Altman <laughs> busts out a legendary line. He goes, 
I know I'm supposed to like you, but for some reason I don't. <laughs> and Groden said, you know, I kind of knew exactly what he meant, even though it wasn't really flattering. He was like, we should like each other. Yet there is something. It's kind of fascinating. It's great little detail for both of them because I think they both felt the slings and arrows a little bit of that truth teller persona over the course of their careers. Uh, so I, I just thought those were a great couple of funny anecdotes. Okay, so just to kind of wrap up talking about the film, uh, because I don't really want to do this as a review of California Split, um, but it has a lot going for it. And like I was mentioning earlier, like all Altman films, it, it kind of intentionally or not, it's, it's about the fundamental rot beneath American society, you know, of, uh, or at least the way human beings kind of struggle with that artifice with which we all kind of put between ourselves and the world as a survival mechanism, as a defense mechanism, as a coping mechanism, as whatever mechanism we use as humans to navigate life and the world that we live in. And if you look at some of the Altman films, there's always kind of a, there's a, there's a veneer that you can, that you can see the characters living by and with, you know, in MASH, it's the jokes. It's the sardonic, sarcastic personality which is deployed in order to handle and defend against the horrors of war and the horrors of the operating room that these surgeons are faced with. In Nashville, it's brilliantly and presciently and, and compellingly, you know, fame and, and music and persona, right? Um, in California Split, it's the action, it's the juice, it's the addiction, uh, it's gambling, Gosford Park, manners, class system. In the player, power, ego. These are all kinds of elements to really every Altman film that is what he's interested in. He's interested in using those scenarios to explore American life and explore human behavior and interaction within those constructs and from behind those veils that those constructs throw up in order for the human beings to navigate within them. So the last thing I'll say about the California split is the ending. <laughs> Joe Walsh mentions a couple times in the, in the oral biography that uh, someone warned him, you gotta be careful with Bob because when it gets to the end of the films, he doesn't often know how to wrap them up. And indeed, uh, the ending of the film was very jarring for audiences because the, the entire caper that we're sort of led on with George Siegel and Elliot Gould, you know, pays off. Uh, George Siegel wins big in the casino. Yet, even though he's won something like the equivalent of $450,000 in today's dollars, he's hollow. It doesn't change him, right? The, the victory doesn't mean anything. And because it doesn't, and because the character realizes it doesn't mean anything, he very simply collects his winnings, he gets up, and he leaves. <laughs> he leaves Elliot Gould's character behind, and that's it. And it's kind of an unsatisfying ending in a way, but it's also kind of a perfect ending in a way because it's truthful to what Altman was interested in, which is you can chase this juice, you can chase this action, you can chase this addiction, but even when it works, even when you win, you're not filling the hole in your soul. And so he was truthful to that, but that wasn't the way the picture was ended in Joe Walsh's iteration, which had a little bit more of a uh, a complicated way to get there. But I think in his version, uh, they do have the big payday and they're both happy and ecstatic. 
and uh, the George Siegel character and the Elliot Gould character leave together and are about to get into a taxi cab to return to Los Angeles and everything is good. But then some passing tourists ask Elliot Gould a question about the games inside the casino and he's lured back in. And so he stays and the George Siegel character leaves. And it's, it's a different way to get to maybe somewhat of the same result. But the way that it's played in the current ending is, when I say unsatisfactory, I mean it doesn't resolve anything, right? We've gone on this whole journey and the George Siegel character kind of knows something that we pretty much knew about him all the way through, but there's a truth to it. And yet there are also anecdotes in the book that say, in addition to Altman pursuing the truth, he also, as someone, as Joe Walsh so elegantly said, is someone who was in love with being surprised. Once he got to the end of his movie, there was no more opportunity to be surprised. And so he tended to just kind of abruptly wrap things up and say, okay, we're done. And then he would just make whatever ending he could. Another thing in watching a bunch of these Altman films, you know, the famous overlapping dialogue thing gets mentioned so many times. You know, I didn't notice it. I haven't watched MASH again in a few years. I'd have to watch and see how it sounds. But McCabe and Mrs. Miller, the audio is, is kind of famously pretty bad through the first third or half of the film. Uh, because I don't think that the recording equipment at the time in 1970, 1971 had quite caught up to what Altman was trying to do. I did read in a couple places that California Split, which was made in 1975, was one of the first films to use an eight-track recording process on set. And as a result, you can really hear the difference uh, in the soundtrack when you're watching the film, either in the in the theater or seeing at home today. Because the ability to have kind of that sonic tapestry fade up and out and over and down and in and out so that as you move through a scene, you, you're catching these snippets of dialogue from ancillary characters or background characters. And he's really able to do that with the recording equipment, I think, from this point forward. I really noticed it in McCabe and Mrs. Miller, where it's very hard to understand anything that people are saying. And that was a big problem for, for Warren Beatty and for many people after they screened the film. I didn't notice it quite so much in MASH, but I'd have to go back and see. And maybe it's true that in MASH he was, you know, given that it was still one of his first forays into feature films, maybe he was a little bit more uh, attentive to main characters speaking and maybe had some of that overlapping dialogue. But California Split is really a tour de force of overlapping dialogue and is really a tour de force of filmmaking. And it's worth it for watching that alone. Okay, let's jump a little bit into some of the, frankly, unbelievable true crime aspects of the making of California Split. Four actors who have prominent roles in the film died or were killed or suffered horrible fates. And it's part also, I think, of what I was talking about before with that 1970s hangover decade. Uh, people 
you know, pursuing different ways of fulfillment, people pursuing different paths, whether it's, you know, medical beliefs or spiritual beliefs, you know, people maybe not getting the help that they needed through difficult times and suffering sad and ignominious ends. All of this occurred and happened during the making of this film. So the first person who died actually died during the filming of the movie. And the film is actually dedicated to her. Her name is Barbara Ruick. And Barbara Ruick has a very small role as a kind of sassy bartender in one of the poker, one of the, one of the important poker scenes in the movie where the George Siegel and Elliot Gould characters roll up and uh, George Siegel is going to get into the game and hopefully, you know, take down a big score. And Barbara Ruick plays this kind of funny uh, Zaftig bartendress who riffs a little bit with the boys. And Barbara Ruick is interesting. And I think I couldn't, I didn't read anything in the book that showed where Altman had got the idea to use her, but she certainly had been in and around Hollywood uh, from the late 30s. Uh, through, you know, the 70s and had been on television and on radio uh, a lot through the 40s and the 50s. And it may be that, that maybe she's someone that Altman kind of had encountered there. She worked a lot on, you know, studio films in the 50s and the early 60s. One of her famous film roles was in Carousel. When the children are asleep, I'll dream with you. She was married to composer John Williams, John Williams Jaws, John Williams Star Wars, John Williams every single film you could ever name, that John Williams. Well, they were married at the time that she was making this film uh, in Nevada at the time. She had been out of Hollywood for a couple of decades, I think, prior to California Split. So that's why I wasn't sure how she ended up in the movie in this small role. But so sadly, uh, Barbara had an aneurysm in her hotel room during the filming of the movie and died. She was found dead in her uh, motel room. At first, you know, people weren't certain what had happened. I don't think it was her style, but certainly there's a lot of partying going on in the Altman universe at this time. There's a lot of substances of all types. Uh, there's a lot of drinking, a lot of carousing, but I don't think it sounds like that was something that she was a part of. She certainly seemed to be enjoying herself on screen and enjoyed kind of japing with Elliot Gould and with George Siegel. So it turned out after they did the autopsy that she had a cerebral hemorrhage and that's what killed her. So the film is dedicated to her. I'd like to add his initials to my monogram. Somebody I'm 
kind of the first indication that we have during the filming of the film that something, you know, was perhaps amiss. I'm not going to say it's a curse, but just a year later, when the film came out in 1975, there's another fascinating sidebar here with an actor named Barbara Colby. Now, Barbara Colby gives us our first opportunity to jump back into the Columbo Cinematic Universe. Columbo Cinematic Universe. Ah. One more thing. Because Barbara Colby was in season one, episode one, directed by Steven Spielberg, formerly attached to direct California Split. And starring legendary Columbo bad guy, Jack Cassidy. Jack Cassidy was married to Shirley Jones. Shirley Jones had been a roommate of Barbara Ruick, who we just discussed. So it's all kind of connected. Now, Barbara Colby... You, you might know from some TV appearances in the 70s. Uh, particularly, she did a very memorable, very funny guest appearance on the Mary Tyler Moore Show, where Mary is forced to spend the night in jail because she won't reveal a source. And uh, Barbara Colby plays one of two prostitutes that, uh, <laughs> that Mary has to spend the night with in a jail cell. And you can just hear in this clip that I'll play for you, uh, how quickly she has the studio audience eating out of the palm of her hand. Right in here. Are you sure I couldn't have my overnight bag? Sorry. It's just that you had my toothbrush and toothpaste in it. I just hate to wake up in the morning without brushing my teeth. <laughs> you know that taste in your mouth when you first wake up? <laughs> I know it's funny, but ever since I was a little girl, I mean, I just couldn't do anything until I brushed my teeth. <laughs> so, <laughs> I guess we're gonna be roomies. <laughs> my name's Mary Richards. Hi, I'm Sandra D, and this is Annette Funicello. <laughs> She's Sherry, I'm Kim. Oh. So, what are you in here for? Oh, I fell in love with a cop. How about you? Yeah, what'd they get you for? Impersonating a Barbie doll. No, <laughs> oh, well, okay. I think I'm going to sleep. Which uh, bunk do you want? Oh, I don't care where I sleep. I know, that's why you're here. <laughs> And the great chemistry that she had with Mary caused them to bring her back, I think, two more times to perform the same role. Well, come on in, Sherry. Sherry. <laughs> How have you been? Fine, you. Fine. You look terrific. Thanks, you do. Thanks. Okay, why don't we cut the crapola? <laughs> I was uh, just going to suggest that. And then when they did a spinoff, called Phyllis, if you'll remember. Phyllis was a Chloris Leachman uh, vehicle. Remember, Chloris had played one of Mary's uh, female friends on the Mary Tyler Moore show. And Barbara was now 
the boss of the photography studio where Cloris Leachman found herself underemployed. So it's July 24th, 1975. It's just a few weeks after Barbara Colby has turned 36 years old, and she's only three episodes in to having a starring role on a TV series and has had notable success in the last few years. Her career has started to take off, and she's carving out a really unique niche for herself as a quirky, intelligent, opinionated, ballsy, brassy uh, female character actor. And her then boyfriend, who was an actor named James Kiernan, and Barbara were walking back to their car in Venice, California, uh, following an acting class that they taught. All of a sudden, inside a parking garage, Barbara and James Kiernan were shot, and Barbara was killed instantly from a single gunshot wound. James Kiernan Uh, But he did tell police before he too died that there was no warning, there was no reason, there was no provocation. They were simply walking to their car, two gang members, I don't know how they knew they were gang members, but that's that's the reference used in a bunch of articles about these killings, emerged and shot both of them at point blank range for no reason at all. There was no evidence of robbery, the killers were never caught, and the homicides to this day are a cold case, technically still open in the state of California. So just a shockingly sad end to an extremely promising career and a kind of kind of underdog actor that I personally root for and I think would have been just one of those people that we would have celebrated on the podcast who would have had a 40, 50-year career in movies and TV as kind of one of those vital that guy or that woman character actors. And that was all taken away from her in this act of, again, 1970s kind of senseless violence. And the unsolved nature of it is so tantalizing, isn't it? And then Gwen Wells in California Split plays one of two sort of hapless would-be prostitutes that uh, the George Siegel and Elliot Gould characters interact with. And uh, they're played by uh, Anne Prentice, who's the sister of the perhaps better known, uh, her perhaps better known sibling Paul Apprentice and Gwen Wells. You know, both Gwen Wells and Paul Apprentice also passed away through very difficult circumstances. In Gwen Wells' case, there wasn't a crime involved. Uh, she simply became sick with cancer and at the time was married to noted character actor Harris Eulin. And Gwen Wells gives such a great and um, memorable appearance in California Split. She is just this very sexy, beautiful, funny, but relatable kind of screen presence. And she she really inhabits this role. You know, again, it's a thankless kind of a role, but she inhabits it really well. And you find yourself kind of wanting to know more about her and looking her up, which is what I did. And that's how I kind of stumbled onto these crazy stories of what had happened to people. Perhaps most famously, she was uh, she's better known for her role in Nashville, where she plays the desperately wannabe singer who uh, stuffs her bra with tissues and accepts a performance date in front of a group of men at some sort of corporate 
you know, bar event, which is really a striptease show, but she's told that she can sing a song. Coming to keep you occupied, just keep, keep your eyes up because good things come from above. So she sings a song and she has no talent. Uh, and that's apparent to everyone in the room. And she's humiliated off the stage. Never get enough. I never get enough of the love I'm hungry for. I never get enough. I never get enough. I always want more and more. Even if we stay together our whole lifetime through. I'll never get enough, I'll never get enough, I'll never get enough of you. Worst singer I ever heard. And then the character played by Michael Murphy, who's another Altman, you know, player who I think was in, you know, maybe every Altman movie that he made, including his TV series with uh, Gary Trudeau, Tanner. He convinces her to go back out, finish the performance by stripping. And if she does that, he will ensure that she gets another opportunity to sing, even though he knows she has no talent. What's man, honey? What? You stay with going on. Now listen, here. come on. And try to tell you supposed to strip. I'm a singer. Listen, honey, listen, listen, listen. You go down and finish the show like you told Trout you'd do, and I'll set it up so you can sing in the wow. Parthenon. Huh? I'll set it up for you so you can sing in the Parthenon with Barbara Jean. You, don't you go on down, finish the show like you told Trout. Yes, you are. Yes, you are. Yeah. I'll take care of it for you, man. Go finish the show like you told Trout you'd do. Okay? Wow. These fellas really like you, man. Okay? You know, I'm going to be as big a star as Barbara Jean is one day. Are you can't miss. Ah. And this her scene of humiliation as she sort of desultorily strips and takes the tissue out of her bra is so heartbreaking and in a way is kind of the the heart of the film. A lot of people respond to that moment as the emblematic moment of kind of what Nashville is really all about in the filmic sense. And uh, you know, that was Gwen Wells. So what happened to Gwen Wells was unfortunately she developed cancer. Uh, in 1992. And apparently, and this is just what I could glean from, from Wikipedia and IMDb, she opted not to take conventional treatments, not to do chemotherapy, not to do uh, the medical, chemical avenues that are available to treat or hold cancer at bay. And whether that had any uh, whether that had any impact ultimately on the timing of her death, I don't know. I, can, I wouldn't want to speculate about anything like that. Uh, but in 1993, one year after her diagnosis, she did die from the cancer at her home in Santa Monica, California. Uh, and she'll probably be best known as the Suleen character in Robert Altman's Nashville. There's actually a documentary made by a friend of hers of her uh, battle with cancer. And you can 
find on YouTube uh, a snippet of an interview done with her. And you can see that even ravaged with cancer, she's still a, a luminous and beautiful person whose spirit is very much fighting to stay present. Even as she's talking uh, very, very spiritually, very soulfully in the clip about being ready to go if it's her time and not wanting to stay here if that's not what's meant for her. So that's why I was kind of speculating a bit that, you know, out of the 70s, out of the 60s, you know, people who were alive, people who were teenagers and in their 20s and around those times, you know, there's a lot of uh, seeking, a lot of searching going on at those times. And I wonder if, if in a way, the death of Gwen Wells and her choice to maybe follow a non-medical establishment route has something to do with countercultural roots and the ways in which people manifested those later in their lives, for better or for worse. And that brings us to Anne Prentice, the other half of that duo uh, that I was mentioning. <laughs> Anne Prentice, as I mentioned, was the younger sister of actress Paula Prentice, uh, who was, of course, married to Richard Benjamin and famously have one of the most intact, complete, long-running marriages in Hollywood. You know, it's like Hollywood is such a can be such a morass of morals and debaucherous behavior that, you know, if you stay married for 20 years, you're held up as a uh, paragon, paragon and pinnacle of uh, marital harmony. But that does seem to be the case. And Anne Prentice is a really compelling screen presence in California Split. She has a certain wildness, a certain out-of-controlness, which I was remarking on even as I watched the movie, even though I was completely unaware of the final chapter of her life, which wouldn't take place uh, until late 1990s and 2010. So Anne Prentice, you know, whether she was overshadowed or not by her sister's more established success, I'm uncertain, but she definitely had some incredible screen qualities. But apparently things went a little awry for her uh, in the last decade of her life, in 1997, she was convicted of assaulting her 86-year-old father at his house and from prison, later trying to have a convict hired to kill her father, to kill Richard Benjamin, and Richard Benjamin and Paula Prentice's son, Ross Benjamin. And she was sentenced to 19 years in prison for those crimes. And she served 12 years in prison prior to dying uh, in jail in January 2010. So just a, a terrible, terrible ending for a talented person who had a few roles of note, uh, but kind of seemed to suffer either from some mental illness, I'm not sure, uh, what caused her to lose the thread, but it seems like she lost the thread pretty significantly. And has one of those crazy Hollywood endings that you wouldn't wish upon anyone. And just to wrap things up for good measure, we also have a cult story. Yes. Who doesn't love a good cult story? I know I do. So I mentioned earlier in the pod that Altman often found interesting ways to cast extras in his films outside of the normal course of where you would typically find them. So typically you're finding them by putting out a casting call or getting struggling actors. And what do they look like? They look like struggling actors. Well, that's not what Aldman was interested in, right? He wanted real, he wanted real people. 
he was after almost a documentary-like approach for the background players. And at the time that they were making California Split, there was a drug rehabilitation program called Synanon, which was extremely popular in Southern California and had that great cultish arc of kind of starting in the late 50s and in the 60s becoming a bit of a vogue as people, you know, started to tune in, turn on and drop out and, and wanted to get more in touch with themselves. Uh, Chuck Dederick founded Synanon after his own experiences getting sober in Alcoholics Anonymous, uh, except that he kind of ran Synanon more as a for-profit business. And he, at first, uh, managed to get a toehold in Hollywood. And the uh, Casa del Mar building in Santa Monica is a very historic and famous building, which is still there. It's now on its third or fourth iteration as an extremely high-end hotel. Uh, but the building dates back to the 1920s and has a rich and storied history unto itself. Uh, but anyway, in the 60s and in the 70s, this self-help group, which originally appealed to addicts of any stripe and variety, it wasn't just limited to alcoholics or drug addicts or gambling addicts, it took in any addict, anyone having any type of addiction. But then actually, it became so well-known that people wanted to be a part of it in order to improve their own lives, regardless of whether they were addicted or not. And Synanon famously had a thing called The Game. And The Game was a roundtable group therapy session where you were encouraged and expected to offer and endure intense criticism. As a means towards self-realization, I guess. But like most cults uh, or cults of personality, Synanon eventually self-imploded under charges of violence, intimidation, the classic kind of uh, cult collapse where, you know, all the details start coming out about women being forced to be sterilized uh, because Diederich didn't like children. So he caused couples to break up. He had them shave their heads. Back in the 1950s, when Synanon came to public attention, it was a drug and alcohol rehabilitation program. I found an environment that was a loving environment. I found a place that was humane, and I found a place that was very firm. All of the things that I needed to change my behavior. The organization is composed of what Synanon calls dope fiends, squares, and delinquent children, punks. Synanon educates, clothes, and feeds its members, and in return, most of them turn over their personal wealth and work for Synanon. I think that any organization like Synanon, which convinces people that live there that it is such a superior way to live, that that causes people to do anything that the organization wants them to do. The organization has become a self-contained cradle-to-grave society with $33 million in assets. Synanon owns airplanes and boats. In 1970, smoking was forbidden. Male members had vasectomies. Pregnant women had abortions. Had somebody given the order to a bunch of, of fanatics to use physical violence on me or any other kind of dissident there, I was afraid. I just had those spooky, violent vibes.
In fact, George Lucas used Synanon cult members for his first film, THX 1138, which put him on the map. He hired extras from Synanon because they had shaved heads and he needed a large group of people with shaved heads. So Synanon had kind of been in the, the background of Hollywood, if you want to call it that, when, when Altman suggested hiring members, uh, A, because it was cost effective, because rather than paying you know people to be background extras at the rates that the unions would determine, he tasked his production manager with going down to Synanon and offering to make like a $10,000 donation in exchange for having X number of people available on these days uh, to wear their own clothes and to appear in the backgrounds of all the various gambling scenes. And it does give those scenes uh, a verisimilitude that is hard to ignore. You know, your eye is drawn to these very believable looking characters, all of whom, of course, through being involved in Synanon, had struggled with addiction of one form or another in their own lives. And the question of whether you can read that on the screen from those extras in a way that you wouldn't from a more traditionally cast Hollywood extra is a very interesting one when you watch the film. See what you think. So, Synanon epically collapsed when a lawyer began asking uncomfortable questions, and two Synanon members placed a de-rattled rattlesnake in his mailbox uh, because he had brought a lawsuit on behalf of people who were being held against their will uh, by the cult. He was bit by the rattlesnake when he opened his mailbox, and he spent six days in the hospital. And that allowed police to launch an investigation and the government to launch an investigation into Synanon. After Diederich was arrested in 1978, uh, two other Synanon residents were arrested and pleaded no contest to charges of assault and conspiracy to commit murder. And without the leader uh, and with a severely tarnished reputation, the IRS moved in. They had a $17 million back tax payment due that bankrupted the organization, which then formally dissolved in 1991. So, wow. There you have it. Robert Altman's interest in the American underbelly in the American psyche also has so many real world stories of endings that mimic, I think, so much of what people would have gone through coming through the 60s and the 70s. So perhaps one person is a dedicated follower of uh, untraditional, you know, non-Western medicine practices, and perhaps as a result, you know, doesn't live that prolonged, but perhaps unsatisfying or un, un, uh, unhappy day-to-day -day life of the chemo patient. Someone's killed to, in, a, in a completely random act of violence, which remains unsolved to this day. Uh, someone else unravels much later, you know, later on in life when perhaps things hadn't worked out career-wise in a career like Hollywood. You have this background of self-help movements and cults which were so rich and so fertile in Los Angeles at the time. There's so many great cult documentaries of the era. Synanon is one of them. And that's intermingled into the film, although at the time that Altman was making this, I don't think Synanon had yet uh, turned the corner into some of the dark corners that it would eventually uh, find itself parked. But that's some of the rabbit hole that I went down in watching California Split. I hope that's not too dark and morbid. Uh, because the film is not dark and morbid. Uh, the film is very funny, it's very provocative, and it's really, really an extremely worthwhile Altman film to check out if you're in the mood for a classic 1970s film. 
And by the way, when I rewatched The Player just last week, it still holds up. Very prescient. That's you. What's your pitch? The best. Well, is political scary? Political doesn't scare me. Radical political scares me. This political political scares politely me. Politely politically radical. But is it it's funny? It's funny. It's, it's funny. a funny political thing. It's a funny, it's a thriller, too. It's a thriller. And it's all at once. So, uh, what's the story? Well, I want Bruce Willis. Mm -hmm. I think I can talk to him. Um, it's a story about a senator, a bad guy senator at first. Uh, and he's traveling around the country on the country's dime, you know, uh, like that Sununu guy used to. I see, so, sort of a cynical political thriller comedy. Yeah, but it's got a heart. Uh, in the right spot. Uh -huh. And anyway, he has an accident. An accident? Yeah, and he becomes clairvoyant, like a oh, psychic. Oh, I see. Yeah. So, so it's kind of a psychic political thriller comedy with a heart. With a heart. And uh, not unlike Ghost meets Manchurian Candidate. Go on, go on. I'm listening. Anyway, he can start to read people's minds. And when he gets to the president's mind, it's completely blank. Completely blank. I I'd like a beer, please. We don't have beer. Oh, okay. Wine. Red wine, please. Of course, if someone gets killed at the end, they always do in political thrillers.